Hey there, it's Jim Stengel, host of the CMO Podcast. We're all marketers here, so let's be real for a sec. We all know that your website shouldn't be a static asset. It should be a dynamic part of your strategy to build your brand and drive conversions. That's Marketing 101. But 54% of marketing leaders say web updates take too long. That's over half of you listening right now. And that's where Webflow comes in. Their visual-first platform allows you to build, launch, and optimize web pages fast. That means you can set ambitious marketing goals and your site can rise to that challenge. Learn why teams like Dropbox, IDEO, and Orange Theory all trust Webflow to achieve their most ambitious goals today at webflow.com. What's the first brand you remember making an impact on you as a young girl? I remember Guest Jeans very, very explicitly and how um, that icon, you know, the question mark, the triangle, it was just a sign if someone was cool and had it or not. And the little zippers at the ankle, you know, so, um, that's one that I remember And the ads. I used to save the ads, you know, I do the tear out and the mood board from all the magazines that came to my house and create my sort of aspirational looks. You know, I've always been a lover of fashion, even, um, you know, even well before I started my professional life. And even when I was working in other industries, there's something about fashion and how it helps you express your identity. It's really powerful. Hi, I'm Jim Stengel, and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it, and the profits follow. For seven years, I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, but the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands, are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. My guest today on the CMO podcast is Dina Bari, the first ever chief marketing officer for the five-year-old company StockX. If you are into sneakers and streetwear, you no doubt know who they are. StockX is an online marketplace with a bid-ask model and a solid authentication process. Sneakers was its original category. The company has since branched out into other categories, including streetwear, electronics, collectibles, accessories, and even beauty. StockX is one of Detroit's, indeed one of the United States' fastest growing companies, with revenue north of $40 million and a valuation of just under $4 billion. It boasts 30 million average monthly visitors and now has a team of more than 1,000 associates. My guest Dina is no stranger to marketing jobs and high-growth companies. Dina has worked at Reebok, TheLadders.com, Guilt Group, Birchbox, Juicero, and Helix before becoming CMO at StockX about two years ago. She is fluent in French, but we will have this chat in English. This is my interview with Dina Bari. Dina, welcome to the CMO Podcast. And I've noticed you are a self-described home chef, fitness fiend, and bookworm. So let's go there first. What are you cooking these days? Well, I am cooking, honestly, a lot of stuff from our summer garden. So zucchini, everything. Um, and cherry tomato, everything, uh, as well as lots of sort of, um, grilled, you know, it's summer, it's grilling Mm -hmm. season. So insert any meat that goes with corn and salad and zucchini, um, pork chops this week. So trying to keep it, um, you know, taking advantage of the summer bounty and the season. Okay. Um, you have a couple kids. Do they know how cool your job is? (laughs) They do, especially, um, the older two, you know, my, my 12 year old who's going into eighth grade, she definitely knows. Um, and then even my 10 year old boy, who's going into fifth grade, uh, you know, Yeezys are at the tip of everyone's t- tongue. Apparently every fifth bo- grade boy wants a pair of Yeezys, um, and, and Jordans as well. So yes, they have pointed out many times that, um, that my job improves their street cred uh, at school. <laughs> Do they get on the site a lot? Do they give you ideas? Do you see what they're doing? Do you talk about work? Um, we do talk about work, but I don't, it's funny. I don't really use them. You know, they're still in the phase where they're highly influenced by me. They don't necessarily have um, their own shopping habits, but we talk, we do talk about work at the dinner table a lot. You know, um, it's one of the things about our family. We, we talk about everything at the dinner table, whether it be politics or, um, office conundrums. And I think that's a great way to expose kids to what, you know, what careers are all about and, and what life is like. So, 
um, they hear a lot about, you know, different decisions I'm trying to make or various ups and downs um, in our daily work lives. That's so cool. When my daughter was a teenager and we started going to the Cannes Festival at PNG, I took her with me and got oh, her a amazing. pass. And she looked at work during the day. She told me what was impressive to her. We talked about the work at night. I mean, it was really, actually, it was great for her and actually great for me to see what a 15, 16 year old girl is finding interesting, you know, in our, in our world. Absolutely. I do. I do think that as my kids grow in the next couple of years here, they will start bringing their own ideas about stuff yeah. next to me and their own suggestions. Uh, so I'm sure I'll get a lot of use out of that. We are recording this during the Olympics and there's, I noticed you have a lot of Olympic, you know, things surging on your site. Yeah. Tell us a bit about what's going on, what we can learn about culture trends right now in terms of what's, what's happening on your site. Absolutely. So yes, we are definitely all excited about the Olympics and especially our Japan team, you know, because obviously the Olympics being in Tokyo means a lot to that country and, and to the community there. Uh, and so we do have a bunch of um, storytelling and merchandising focused around this amazing event. Um, trends that we've seen, you know, I think skate is one of the standout trends and, and has been even before the Olympics. Mm -hmm. um, but the fact that there's two kinds of skate competitions in the Olympics this year and that, you know, that alone is amazing. And I think outside of the Olympics, the way that SB Dunks have risen as a as a top seller on our platform um, and it kind of risen as a top shoe on, on the streets and in, on the runways, that speaks a lot to the influence of, of skate on, on culture. In fact, that was on, I was watching the news yesterday and there was a whole segment on the impact of skate culture on, um, on popular culture. And I took a picture of it because I thought it just speaks so directly to what we're experiencing and driving towards on StockX. So that's one big trend. Um, I think, you know, the Olympics also, I think is a great time for countries to come together and for people to celebrate, you know, how borderless the world can be at times. And, and that is something else that we are seeing as a big trend on the platform. Um, we're a global platform for current culture products. And often we are seeing very interesting journeys of products that are originating in a certain country and being export, exported to other countries. And that really speaks to the interest of global consumers in these different micro trends that emerge from what seem like a niche, very local place or creator. So that's another trend that we're seeing. It's really, as we like to say, trade is a global game. Mm -hmm. Yeah, niches get scaled so quickly these days. Just incredible. Absolutely. And, and we started talking about it using the phrase microcultures because mm -hmm. niche, I think, can be a little bit almost negative, right? It makes it seem like it's just you're in a corner, whereas the idea of a microculture, I mean, if you if you take all of these independent movements and affinity groups and you stitch them together, that is sort of what is reflected in youth culture and in current culture today. So that's the way we've started to talk about it at StockX. Your interest in marketing goes way back. You were a huge fan of car ads as a kid. So, and now you're living in the Motor City or the Motor City area. So what is that all about? Your interest in car ads as a young girl? Well, honestly, I, I mean, car ads were the cinematic ones at the time when I was a kid, right? They, the car brands were the, were the ones that invested in these sort of anthemic spots that were more than just product pushers, right? Um, and so I think that's why I gravitated towards car ads. But honestly, any ad, I used to um, I used to always say, like, turn up the commercials are on, turn up the TV, right? I wasn't, I didn't care at all about the, the content, the main main content, I just cared about the commercials. And so um, I love how other brands today have adopted that sort of cinematic anthemic approach where they're telling stories and crafting narratives through campaigns. And obviously, you know, they try to drive sales too, but I, I love how um, these ad-like objects can accomplish lots of goals for brands today. I love what Ford's doing right now you know, during the Olympics and beyond that, just to tell their story of electrification, really. Yes. And, do, you know, doing the Mustang and the F-150. And it's a very inspiring ad. I think it's very moving. And, it, and, and you know, I, I, love, I love watching what uh, GM and Ford are doing now. I think it's they are remarkable transformations. We have a lot to learn from them. Yeah, I think it's really exciting, and it's you know it's great to see these very iconic traditional brands embracing honestly what is inevitable. Right, change has to happen, and I love that they've decided to embrace it and lead um, rather than being dragged along and being resistant. And I think the creative and and the storytelling really they're leaning into the strengths of heritage and these multi generational. Mm -hmm loyalty stories, but also bringing it into the future, which is, I think, a great way to do it. 
Now let's talk about your role at StockX. And from what I gather, this is your fourth CMO role. After CMO jobs at Birchbox, food and beverage brand Juicero, and Helix, a genomics company. Correct. Did, did you feel prepared to come into the StockX role? I did. In many ways, I feel like this is the job I've been preparing for since my very first marketing job at Reebok. And I, I like to say it's like a come full circle, you know, to those days when I was, um, you know, working in global brand marketing at Reebok on the women's business. Um, you know, I think there I learned all about obviously this category, but also really about balancing brand building in the very classical or traditional way with the regional needs. Um, or even the channel needs. Um, and so balancing that that push and pull between brand um, and PL needs and, and velocity. Uh, and then from there, I went on to work at a number of startups where I um, really learned all about e-commerce, direct to consumer, data-driven marketing, building brands um, that are native to digital channels and um, and marketplaces. So each, if I pull up and think about it, I wish I could say it was intentional and designed this way. It wasn't. But now I look back and I see each one really helped me um, move closer towards this role, which is awesome because I feel like um, I'm in the right place at the right time. So how is the role different from your other CMO type roles? This, you know, the job of CMO at StockX. Well, um, let's see. One way in that is that it's different is simply this is the biggest team I've managed um, and and the biggest scale business uh, that I've helped to lead as a CMO, which inherently brings its own um, learnings and and challenges. Um, also, you know the fact that we are a brand that is so rooted in culture and in um, you know in sneakers in in a very clear identity around where we came from the stock market of things and that we were immediately looking to build and evolve so you know we love that heritage and where we've come from we value and honor and cherish those original sneakerhead audiences but we also want to grow and build and enroll and include more people um, at categories at regions and so immediately stepping into this role it was like, okay, it's time to push really hard into these new priority areas. Um, and that was a great, you know, I stepped into a role where there was a lot of strong foundation, great team, great principles. Of course, there was a lot of work to do to shore up some of the way that we did, whether it's quantitative marketing uh, or content. But at the same time, I had a lot of great material to work with, which in some cases, you know, I was the first marketing hire um, and I had to build the entire team and every single marketing play from the ground up. So it's been great to have all this great uh, raw material to work with. Two questions to follow up to that. I, no I notice you're expanding kind of massively, you know, new countries, new categories. How yeah. do you make those decisions? Uh, you know, I, I kind of get countries, but, but you have so many categories you could go into and sneakers is your base. How do you decide what's next? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And we spend a lot of time on this topic um, because we have this positioning around current culture that is pretty fluid, right? It's, it's clearly defined, but part of the definition of current culture is that it's fluid because the consumer consciousness is shifting and changing. And um, the way that we make those decisions is by listening to the customer. I'm a huge believer in that. And, and StockX in general is very customer centric. And when we've built up a really clear and strong customer listening practice, both qualitative and quantitative, uh, talking to our existing buyers and sellers, as well as prospective buyers and sellers. And it's amazing the signals that you get from the customer. So, you know, to your question about how do we decide what category is next, we often get ideas from our customers or prospective customers. Um, and in, in some cases, it's actually the feedback from the buyers that's more helpful than as it relates to the category expansion question than from the sellers, because the sellers are interested in lots of opportunities. They're, they're driven by economic opportunity. And there mm -hmm. are economic opportunities everywhere that may not fit into current culture. Whereas the buyers are telling us, well, here is the adjacent space that is top of mind for me right now, it helps me identify who I am, express who I am. And so those are the signals that we follow the most closely. Um, recently, we just launched uh, Art Prints, for example. And that's because we heard from talking to collectibles customers that this was a category that they were very interested in, um, where it was hard to participate because of the traditional ways of getting access. Um, 
and authenticity of product was a concern, right? So perfect for, fit for our model, perfect fit for our customer. And so we went off and launched and are really excited about that as one of our new frontiers. How do you personally stay in touch with your customers? I mean, what are some rituals or habits or practices that you have? Yeah, I mean, I do a lot of reading and I get, you know, a thousand newsletters from various trend shops um, or trade magazines, you know, that are talking about what customers care about, what brands are doing. Um, I rely on my team, you know, and my team is younger than I am and, mm -hmm. and personally, you know, closer to um, our customer in a lot of ways. And so we talk and share a lot of our best practices. We have research partners as well who help us with some of those questions um, specifically around what are people, what's coming around the corner, you know, who, what do we need to be paying attention to? And then of course, social media is a lab, right? An ongoing constant lab. And so there are so many signals to be found um, just by following our, you know, influencers, creators, customers in our space. Now you came into this role about two years ago ish. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you built a group. Yeah. So not everyone gets that chance. You know, yeah. I came into a CMO job and there were a lot of people already there and a lot of, you know, uh, departments. How did, where did you start? How did you decide how you wanted to organize, what capabilities you wanted to build, what sort of people you wanted to hire? So take us through your learning sure. and your thought process. Definitely. And, you know, one of the things that was unique about this opportunity is that it was both a build opportunity, but also, as I mentioned, an, like an inherit great, um, great team and great raw material opportunity. So I walked in to an environment where there was some great marketing talent already here. Many of them had been with the company for years, like two, three years. Um, so almost since the beginning. Um, and they had built some really phenomenal brand uh, pillars and, and brand foundation. But there was a lot that was missing too. And, and part of how I identified those bigger opportunities of what was missing was just listening, right? I'm a huge believer in when you start a new role, you have to spend time really talking to the folks who've been there, who are living it every day, who helped build it to where it is, um, and identify the pain points or opportunities. I mean, also, there is a lot of um, clear alignment and direction from my CEO who said, hey, look, this is what I'm looking for my new CMO to do. These are the areas that we have to strengthen or shore up. Uh, in this case, there was a bit of a gap on the quantitative side. So things like acquisition marketing, CRM, analytics, those were all understaffed, under-resourced, um, kind of a weak technology stack. And so it was a clear opportunity slash pain point where it had to be a fix and address, especially for a business that's going through hypergrowth and wants to continue hypergrowth, and that's the engine, right? So you need you need to put that in place. Um, so I would say that was the obvious first um, first place to turn my attention. And then, meanwhile, I spent time really understanding what had been done on the brand side between content, cultural, marketing, creative, and and that's where we were we were very strong already. But I I was able to see some opportunities, you know. For example, we didn't really have a customer research practice. So all of our brand work was by gut instinct. Um, so that was an obvious one for me. We built a customer uh, insights and customer experience management function. Um, we started doing things like uh, segmentation to really understand our target audience and, and how their truths intersect with our brand truths. That led us to uh, rethink of the brand strategy and a rethink of the brand expression. So things started to sort of fall into place quickly once I identified the few priority areas. Um, the truth is that works never done, right? Once you get one team in order and one section of mm -hmm. the team kind of humming, then you realize, oh, you know, this other team needs some attention and, and it's an ongoing journey. How many direct reports do you have? I have eight today. Is that about right in your experience? Is that about the right number? I think that's the max, to be mm -hmm. honest. If you want to spend quality time with your directs and really engage with them personally and professionally coach them as well as be there as a thought partner um, and also be somewhat accessible and available to their teams. I think that's the max. Yeah. We've all been there. You spend millions of dollars each year driving traffic to your company's website and then the results come in and they're just not what you hoped. On top of that, 81% of marketing leaders say website ownership is a challenge. So what do you do? Well, 
you switch to Webflow. Let me tell you why. Webflow's visual-first platform empowers your team to own your company's most valuable dynamic marketing asset, your website. From launching a new site to optimizing for SEO and conversions, Webflow gives you the tools you need to drive business growth fast. Unlock your website's full potential when you build, manage, and host with Webflow. Get started today at webflow.com. I've heard your CEO say that you, he's talking about you, have the perfect balance of marketing experience and growth knowledge. Now, that's what every CMO would like their CEO to say. So I want you to share a little bit about why you think your CEO says that about you. Well, so nice. So nice to hear that. Um, why does he I think, you know, Scott and I spent a lot of time talking at the outset about what the business needed to grow. And it was both, um, you know, that engine for growth, that acquisition, CRM analytics engine, and that really strong foundation on the brand side that would allow us to go out, reach new audiences, tell stories, and um, strike the emotional chord that every brand wants to strike with consumers. So I think, you know, early on, we were aligned that that was what needed to happen. And then we were just very clear about year one, you know, focus on, um, on the growth piece of it, year two, focus on the brand piece of it. And I think having that really strong communication pathway and strong alignment around the order of operations, what has to come first, and then what has to be a fast follow. Um, and then spending now we've had two years together where I've been able to show um, and demonstrate each piece of that coming together. I think that's where it comes from. It's really, you know, having, again, that, that sort of like mental alignment and seeing the world the same way and then being able to deliver on it. Um, you know, like I said, I, I do feel like I've been preparing for this and that perfect mix my whole career because you need both. You can't just, I don't think you can have one without the other. At some point, the growth engine slows unless you have that brand piece. Um, and that emotional resonance that keeps people connected to your brand in a deeper way. How do you know you're making that emotional connection and having that emotional resonance? How do you think about, how do you, how do you know your brand is making progress on that? Do you measure yeah. it? So what are the signals? Yeah, we do measure. We measure everything. And obviously, you know, the measurement for some things is much more clear than for others. Um, in this case, we do me measure brand awareness, consideration, uh, and loyalty. We're moving from a biannual study on that to a sort of always on software driven mm -hmm. process, which I'm really excited about because in a, at this pace, it should be changing often, more often than biannually. Um, but also I think it's, um, it comes through in NPS, which is something that we measure in on an always on fashion. It comes through in customer service satisfaction. It comes through in social sentiment and social engagement in community. So I think it really is a stack. It's like a layer cake of signals. Um, you know, the viral viral nature, I'll give an example. Um, you know, we launched on Discord this year in, the, um, in June, and we had amazing growth on, for, on our server. In fact, it was the fastest server brand server growth um, outside of any celebrity, like tier one celebrity, according to the Discord team. And what we saw were that these super fans, SockX super fans were joining the server and basically helping to educate and advocate for us um, as new people were joining. And so to me, that's a great signal, right? That we are connected to those users and we mean something to them. And then the trick, of course, is how do you grow that, that, that set of super users and advocates? That's the ultimate signal, right? Yes. When your customers are standing up for you and advocating you, I mean, that's, that's the dream. And you seem to be doing a great job of that. Now, let's get back to your CEO. You, he started about the same time you did. And how did you, and you know, he had that beautiful quote about you, which you elaborated on. How did you and do you build a strong relationship with him? What kinds of things do you talk about? How often do you meet with him? What things does he want to get engaged in and not get engaged in? Yeah. It's really interesting. I think, you know, building these relationships with your key stakeholders, whether that's my peer group, you know, the first team, which is my CEO's direct reports with him and, and my directs as well, it takes a lot of intention and a lot of time. And I, as, as I mature in my career, I realize that that relationship building is actually probably the top job, right? Is spending time nurturing those connections, um, communicating transparently 
we put a lot of time and effort into relationship uh, at StockX. Um, so we do a few things. We have a few norms. Um, one is that when we meet every time as a leadership group, we do something called a check-in, which I think to someone, an, a listener from the outside, it sounds like we're in group therapy, mm-hmm. but really it's just opening up and being um, be sharing something about what's going on with us as humans, because we have a belief that if you're connected as humans, then you can be in relationship at work. You have the context required to really understand what's happening at work with that person, and then you can perform better together. So we do that um, in our in our leadership meetings, but we do that in our one-on-ones too. And so with Scott, my CEO, we have a, a regular weekly cadence where we talk. We often do the walk and talks that we talked about. Mm-hmm. We go outside um, and just chat. And we talk about everything. You know, I think having, being able to show who you are as a human and, you know, what's going on with your family or what's on your mind just makes you more open and empathetic um, than to be a partner on the professional front. So we talk about what's going on in our lives and then we talk about what's going on at work and it varies the level, you know, as a CEO, obviously he's got some other, a lot of other commitments and priorities that are a little bit more removed from the day to day. And I try to feel it out. Sometimes I can tell he's mm-hmm. preoccupied with board things or other sort of higher order problems. And so then I keep it super high level and I'm just basically updating him on my top order priorities um, and try to make good use of his time. Whereas if he feels more attuned to the to the sort of operating cadence in a given week, then I'll go deeper on specific work streams. Um, we know which which KPIs, I know which KPIs matter most to him. Um, and so I always just make sure that he knows he's apprised of those. But I think it's just like any relationship, you sort of got to know where someone is in the moment and meet them where they are. And, and just spending the time helps. We try, we try in general not to move one-on-ones. And that's true with Scott, and that's true with my direct reports too, because I think knowing that you've got 20 or 30 minutes carved out every week with somebody just is is very helpful. So you were doing these check-ins before COVID hit. So you were already you know, trying to stay close to we people were. in their whole life with their whole mind. And so that's, so you went into COVID probably pretty well prepared as a team. We did, but honestly, we had to dial it up, right? Because not being in the same room, um, you know, having all of these other concerns weighing on our shoulders, it definitely could have gone in the way. So I think we had to be even more intentional, even more um, sort of coming up with more innovative ways to stay in touch. And I hope that we'll take that with us out of COVID. You know, we're sort of slowly moving back to a world where some of us will be in the office together on some regular cadence. And I hope that we'll still make all the effort to be intentional about staying connected and in relationship. So what are your top priorities now? yourself personally in your job? Personally for the job. Um, well, so the growth engine, making it ever more efficient and effective, that's always got to be a priority. Mm-hmm. Currently that entails, um, expanding our acquisition playbook to our new priority regions. Um, so we're adding new regions every quarter and we believe deeply in having a localized experience. And so mm-hmm. that means, um, you know, translation, it means localized content. It means, localized customer service, um, localized uh, authentication and supply chain experience. And obviously customer service and supply chain are not in my scope, but we work very cross-functionally to make sure that there's a comprehensive experience for that um, local market consumer. And then once that's in place, then we layer on the marketing, the spend, um, et cetera. So there's a real, real partnership across functions to drive that experience as we grow. Another big priority is growing beyond sneakers. Like I said in the beginning here, we you know started out as a sneaker platform, but we are much more than that. And current culture is much more than that. And our consumers are much more than that. So we've been adding categories um, like art prints, like collectibles, trading cards, and um, apparel is a big area of focus. So we're putting a lot of effort into making sure that we're effectively acquiring people into those categories and cross-selling as well as storytelling, um, you know, and all the rest of what we do, cultural marketing. We've got some great partnerships right now in some of those um, emerging categories. My next priority is brand building. Um, you know, I think we've now that we've sort of gotten accomplished many goals on the efficiency of growth front, and we feel that we have a productive engine. Now we want to feed the engine, right, and fuel that by um, reaching to new, pe- reaching out to new people, telling our stories at a higher order level and creating that emotional connection. So we've been working on that, um, you know, really over 
over 12 months, um, starting with the customer segmentation, the brand strategy rewrite, the brand refresh. And now the next step is like coming up with a big idea. And so we're kind of on that path and, and very excited about the opportunities for us next year to activate against a big idea. Dina, do you do that work internally or do you work with outside partners? What's your blend of kind of people and thinking on that? We do have a blend. We have an amazing, uh, very talented in-house agency, if you will. Mm -hmm. uh, one of our founders actually is the head of our creative team. And uh, he oversees a, a wonderful team of designers, product designers, graphic designers, digital designers, uh, and copywriters, um, as well as photographers, videographers. So we, we do cre create uh, and produce a lot of our own work internally. We are selective about bringing in outside partners when we're working on something really big and different. And we need uh, an infusion of fresh thinking, outside perspective, arm's length perspective even. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe just a little bit of specialty expertise that we don't have. So when we did the brand refresh, for example, we, we leveraged an outside partner for that. As we're working on um, this brand work stream, we will bring in an outside partner for that. But usually what we try to do is the deliverable on that project um, is always a playbook so that our internal team can take that playbook and really use it in the business as usual execution day in, day out. Yeah. You're even getting into beauty, right? Did I read that? Well, recently? we just had our first ever beauty drop X. That was yesterday um, with Revlon and Megan Thee Stallion. Mm -hmm. And that was super exciting. So a drop X is a direct release of product exclusively on the StockX platform. It's in limited edition. In this case, there were 450 units of the um, makeup palette and, and uh, kit designed by Megan with Revlon. And they will be going to retail down the road, but they launched first and exclusively on StockX. So they sold out in just a few hours. Um, above, many of the units went above the retail price. And the amount of excitement and energy um, coming from this launch was incredible. So yes, we have made um, made a step into beauty. We're not necessarily adding beauty as a category, mm -hmm. but just looking at places where there is synergy between our brand, partner brands, and of course, that third leg of the stool, the customer. Sure. Um, and I think with Megan and Revlon, there was a perfect fit. What would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half, story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMOs succeed, visit cmo.deloitte.com. I've heard you say in another venue that you're very comfortable embracing change and shifts. So you're in a good job for that. Uh, but yeah. I want you to talk about how you embrace change and shifts and bring people along with you. I think that's the hardest part. And I've, I've been mm. accused in my career of, of uh, moving too fast on something, which I thought we needed to move on. And I didn't bring people with me on that shift or that change. So how do yeah. you, you know, you're comfortable with change, comfortable with shifts, so am I. But just what do you do in your work, your communication, your, your choices yeah. to be sure that everyone's with you? One of the things on a personal level too that helps me be comfortable is I'm a big believer in being very open and vocal about disagreeing when it's still an opportunity, right? I voice what I feel and think I uh, I'm never hold back. And then once we've had that discussion, I commit and we move on. So I think that's one of the things that can help helps me embrace change is I don't hold back. I don't bite my tongue. So I get it all out. Um, and then, and then I just hold hands with my partners and agree that, you know, maybe my opinion didn't rise to the top, but we have to move. So I don't look back after that. Um, and that's hard. I mean, it's hard to do, but I, it's come um, after many years of practicing that. I think in terms of bringing people along with me, I sort of apply the same principle of total transparency. I think if you were to talk to the folks who report to me, they'd say that's one of the things they like about working with me is that I don't hold things close to the vest. I am very open and transparent um, and I cascade information because I honestly, I, I need their help too, right? I think, you know, 
sometimes I'm wrestling with something or the leadership team's wrestling with something. And by talking it through with my leaders, I can get clarity. I do that as a, as a practice. I just share and enroll them in what's going on, even if it's early and we're not at the point of making a change. And so by the time it is time to change direction or shift gears, they're ready, they're primed. I think sometimes change is hard because people are shocked <laughs> and mm-hmm. that, you know, you just need time to digest it. And so, um, so I try to use that to my advantage and give people the early and advance notice when I can. Um, I also try to create an environment where they can feel safe saying how they feel again, you know, disagree, disagreeing and, and working through the conflict is really important to me. But then once we work through it and we've had our sessions, you got to commit and you got to be on board um, and you can't continue looking over your shoulder either. What are you most proud of in the last two years? We've accomplished a lot of great things. I think, honestly, what I'm most proud of is the way that we were able to keep the team together, happy, engaged, cared for over the pandemic. I mean, that's no small feat. It's even when there isn't a global crisis, health crisis, and you know, social political crisis, I think that's hard to do when you're growing this quickly. But we've really prioritized the human piece of the equation and making sure that um, we were doing everything we could to to make people feel heard, considered, and cared for, to allow people to feel safe, bringing their whole selves to work, to acknowledge how much has been happening um, on all those fronts and, and, that, and that it affects you and your ability to, to show up every day, um, and communicating about all the great things that we have um, in front of us, you know, about the mistakes or missteps we've made. I think really trying to, again, enroll people in this idea of like, we are building this together. And, um, you know, we want, just like we talked about customers, we want our employees to be so emotionally connected. It's not just a paycheck. Um, We're building something great and, and we all have the chance to shape it. How do you do that with your employees? I mean, I, I, I love that thought. Not all companies achieve that. So what have you done to ensure that, you know, everyone's emotionally committed to the company, to each other, to the customers, to the brand you're building? Yeah. Yeah. I think I, I said it before. I'll say it again, listening to the customer in this case, Mm -hmm. the employee, that's really important. And we've implemented a number of new things this year um, or over this 18 month period to listen better. So Everything from, you know, the predictable, which is like better surveys to the unpredictable or or more unusual things like candid conversations, um, which is something that we've implemented with our diversity and inclusion leader to talk about issues that we know are top of mind for employees and that are, again, stressful um, and that they may not have a channel for. So, for example, um, during some of the racial inequity moments over the last year, um, whether it was around um, violence towards Asians or around the George Floyd murder, you know, we had co- full-on conversations where, um, you know, the whole team, the CEO, everyone participated and just talked. Um, and we were, you know, sometimes just naming what matters to people and allowing them to voice it um, can make a huge difference. So that's one of the things that I think was really innovative and, and human-centric that we've done. Um, and then we've just sort of rolled out versions of that to all of our team meetings. So for example, we do a monthly all hands for the marketing team and we try to have breakout sessions where we can talk about, get together and talk about, Hey, um, what's we've identified three big themes where we can do better. Like, let's just hear your ideas. Like, how do you think we can stay entrepreneurial or, or achieve better work-life balance, um, or be more collaborative. And I think enrolling people, letting them have a voice, enrolling them in the solution, um, I think goes a, quite a long way. How are you a different leader now, Dina, two years into the job than you were when you came in? I think I'm more patient. You know, in the beginning, it's hard to start a new job every time, no matter how many times you've done it, yeah, right? And you have this drive to prove that you're worthy and that um, you're going to make change and have an impact. And so there's a little bit of, you know, anxiety and sort of restlessness and patience in the beginning. And I definitely feel that now I have that longer perspective, right? One, one year and two years in, you start to get a little calmer, <laughs> you've proven yourself, you um, realize that it's a marathon, not a sprint. Mm-hmm. And um, so, so that's a big part of this, like having a, a couple of those proof points um, to feel confident and 
you know, both in myself and, and also having earned the trust of others. The other thing is, you know, we put a lot of time actually into leadership development. And, um, you know, I work with a coach on being a better leader, collaborator, person, human. And I specifically, the issue that I'm interested in um, is compassion as a leader and self-compassion as a leader. Um, and again, that speaks to the idea of empathy, patience, um, seeing the long game, listening. Um, and so I think through some of that work that I've been doing with my coach, um, I've really been able to be a better listener, partner, leader. What has the coach done to help you be more effective? Gosh, that's a good question. Um, so first, I think providing, these are sometimes hard conversations to have. Like not everyone is, is an uh, avid listener on a topic like self-compassion. Not everyone is a safe audience for like, hey, I think I kind of acted like a jerk in that meeting and got territorial. And I'm not proud of that. And I don't want to do that again. So how can I do better? Um, so some of it is just being a interested and safe and experienced listener on those topics. But obviously, there has to be more than that. There has to be practical problem solving sort of toolkits as well. And so we'll talk about, you know, I'll use that exact example. And then we unpack it. Why? Where did that come from? Like, you know, okay, let's ultimately we unpack it and it comes down to feeling safe, right? And feeling, um, you know, able to take risks. And so how do we set ourselves up to do that better? What are the different um, practices we can deploy to stay calm if we're feeling a little unstable and not be reactive? So it's this combination of just having a forum to talk about the things that you want to do better and then having a partner, a thought partner who has really great practical, um, you know, mm -hmm. tool, tools to do it. And the accountability too, I would say, you know, we show up every other week, we spend time, we talk about it and it's, we're tracking progress. I was obviously browsing your platform, you know, as a consumer before this interview, and I did land on your corporate uh, landing page on your website. And actually your yeah. purpose was front and center. It's the first thing I came upon. So I would like you to talk a little, a little bit about that. Why is the purpose the first thing I came upon on your corporate site? What's the role of the purpose been in your brand restage? How do you, where did, what was it, the origin story on the purpose? How do you engage your team in that purpose and what it means to yeah. live it? Well, I'm so glad that you saw it. <laughs> first of all, that's awesome because it is something that we spend a lot of time on. Um, and I'm actually pulling up the page right now because it's been a while since I've been on these about pages. Um, it's the company page, I'm pretty sure. Yep. And, you know, we spent a lot of time crafting this and it was a partnership between um, my team who was working on the brand strategy, the corporate cons team, who was working on a lot of the um, language for the higher order company strategy and the CEO and leadership team, because we were going through this sort of existential process of wanting to articulate who are we, what do we stand for, what are our values even. So we, we aligned on the idea that the purpose statement, it should be something that is really long-term, aspirational, high-level, like big swing, right? So we we have this sort of vague language, next-gen commerce or the next-gen consumer, and wanted it to be wide open. Um, you know, important that it has the consumer in there. Like I said earlier, we put a huge premium on being customer-centric on tying every decision back to will this delight and serve the customer. So we needed the customer to play a role in that vision statement. And then, you know, when you think about the term next-gen commerce, so today you might say, oh, well, it's a marketplace, right? But that's today. And we wanted space for this, like I said, to be big. And, and we don't know exactly um, what shape that will take in the future, but we do know that we want to continue to innovate and drive for change. That's one of our values. And so, you know, we tried to architect the sentence that was specific enough that it would be, um, you know, identifiable, ownable to us, but also was big enough to allow for, for all the change and innovation that will inevitably happen in our young company's life. And then we sort of went the next step on that journey, right? So, okay, we've got this big statement. How do we pull it in to a two to five-year horizon? How do we make it concrete? Um, and tie it to some of the initiatives we've already identified. Um, and how do we tie it to brand strategy? So we've had taken the brand strategy 
pretty far along by this point and identified some pillars, um, identified a new promise. Um, we had written things like, hey, we're all about empowering the consumer to participate in current culture. And that means economic opportunity if you're a seller. It means self-expression if you're a buyer. So it really has sort of cascaded down from this very high level statement that we wanted to be customer centric and to really speak to our drive to innovate in commerce. Um, and then and gotten helped us to shape these more specific and closer in statements around the next few years, around the brand pillars. Um, and it is actually useful in the day to day because I'll, I'll, I'll use one of the catchphrases next gen. We pull that all the time into our daily lexicon. Like, is this next gen? Like, is this innovative? Is this really speaking to the future or is this like mooring ourselves to the past? Um, so, so there's sort of these shorthands that we're able to refer to uh, regularly to keep us honest and, and looking at that North star. I want to now shift the conversation to our last part, which is the creative brief, we call it, where we get further insights about you as a person, a human being. And the first one I want to go to is you're the daughter of Lebanese and Syrian immigrants. Yes. So tell, tell us how that has shaped you as a leader, as a person, uh, to make the choices you made you know, in your career and your life. Yeah. So... Uh... It's been seminal, I would say. I think, you know, my family, my parents, and my sister are directly responsible for the human being that I am today. I think, um, you know, my parents have this amazing story. They came here. So so my parents were actually born and raised in Egypt, Syrian and Lebanese um, of descent, and then emigrated here in 68, 1968. They were young. They were like 22, just married, just finished. Um, you know, their engineering degrees had no money, no contacts, and just, you know, made it happen, right? Like the American dream. And um, that story and the work ethic and the focus and discipline required to accomplish what they accomplished, I think has given me the strength and discipline to be the kind of person that I am, um, you know, super goal-oriented, um, very driven work ethic, strong work ethic, um, pretty grounded in terms of, you know, lifestyle. And, you know, like I remember the stories my parents would tell me about, um, you know, they would work all day and then they would go to like grad school at night and they would come home and like strip paint off their house or whatever, you know, just that, just doing everything they could to build the life that they wanted. And I, I try to remember that, um, even though I, I, you know, there's so many things about my life that are different. I never want to stray too far from those values. So, so that's a big part of it. I think the other thing is um, the culture, the Middle Eastern culture, right? Family is everything. Um, you really have to, yeah, I mean, family is everything. Family is the center um, of my world. And I think that came directly from from my parents and my sister who are still, you know, the, the first people I call every day. Um, and look, there is a a piece of it too of otherness, you know, growing up in a mostly white suburban community, I, like silly stories, like my lunches were always on pita bread sandwiches. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, I'm so embarrassed about that. You know, yeah. I never had like the fun American brand snacks. Um, now I look back and I'm like, I always snicker because, you know, every grocery store sells very expensive pita bread and hummus. And, you know, um, it's mainstream now. But at the time, those little, signals of not being like everyone else. Obviously that that's hard when you're young. Uh, and I think there is a little bit of that that stayed with me. I'm always trying to show that I belong where mm -hmm. I am. Um, so maybe that contributes to the drive as well. Who's been the most significant career mentor in your life? I've been really lucky. I've had a lot of great career mentors. Um, I, so I, there's a few people, it's more like a council, a board mm -hmm. of directors almost. My sister's on that board of directors. She is an executive coach and she's, you know, one of the smartest people I've ever met. And I'm lucky that I can talk to her about a lot of these topics um, around my career and how I navigate difficult things or, or goals or anything. Um, so she's someone who, even though she's not in my field, she's shaped my career a lot. Um, I, I had a woman that I worked for when I was my first career, I was an investment banker, little known fact. Um, 
And the woman that I worked for, I consider someone who is in large part responsible for me going off to business school um, and shifting gears because she basically took me under her wing when I joined a, a firm that was you know, dominated by men. And mm -hmm. uh, I think she saw me and said, oh, I'm going to look out for this one. And she is part of the reason I ended up at Harvard Business School, mm -hmm. um, which changed my life, obviously. Um, I had... Um, I had a boss at Juicero also named Jeff Dunn. He was an incredible marketer um, and he ended up running, he was on the board of Juicero and then ended up running the company. Um, he was a great mentor to me because, um, you know, he was my boss, but also he had this sort of heritage and history as a marketer. And, you know, I've ha also had these funny, funny mentors come into my life, like a woman named Lynn Casey, who I hired to do research for me when I was at Reebok and she ended up being a great friend. Now here we are 20 years later. She still does work for me sometimes. She helped me with some work at StockX recently, but she's just a wonderful friend and mentor, also incredible marketing background. Um, and so, you know, I find that sometimes the mentors appear in unexpected places. Yeah. Okay, here's the last question. Who would you like to hear on the CMO podcast? Oh my gosh, who would I like to hear? I would like to hear from the CEO, CMO of Peloton. Yeah, I was in a meeting with her recently. She would be dynamite. Yeah. We had the first CMO of Peloton on the podcast, you know, about half a year ago, but she left the job. So yeah. hearing how Dara is coming in and managing growth and some issues, right? Managing growth. Yeah. And issues. I think it's really interesting, right? There are these different phases, right? You can build a brand with no baggage and do all that hard work, existential work. You can come in like I did when the brand was like formed a little bit past the existential crisis, but not no baggage really. Right. Still lots of upside. And then you can like in her role, I think there were some missteps, obviously amazing loyalty, great brand DNA, but the work was cut out. And I think she brings a really different experience set than a lot of the, her predecessors and the rest of the team there. And I mean, it's a brand that has incredible love. I just saw their latest ad when I was watching the Olympics last night and I was like, I love that spot. So I'd love to hear from her. And she just seems like a really cool person yeah, uh, she is. as well. So, yeah. yeah. Okay, Dina, we could go on and on, but we can't. You have a meeting to get to. <laughs> and I love this conversation. And I wish you the best. And come back and Thank join you. us sometime in the future to talk about what happened to StockX the next year or two. I would love to. Thanks again. That was my conversation with Dina Bari. Three takeaways from this one for your business and life. First one is to make listening a strength. Now, we talk about listening a lot, but how many of us really do that well? Dina listens to customers. She listens to employees. She listens to her CEO. She listens to influencers, trendsetters. She goes in curious. She goes in quiet. She listens, synthesizes, and builds the learning into her strategies. Second takeaway, think about the rituals that keep you creative and at the top of your game. Dina shared her rituals. She's highly disciplined about it, and she feels fresh and creative almost all the time. Third takeaway, lots here about company purpose and how to hardwire it to everything else. Dina is a case study at hardwiring your brand strategy, your communications, your innovation programs to the company strategy. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribed so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.